Our psalm this morning is Psalm 78, verses 1 through 32. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and, arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant. They refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan. He, delivered the, he divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused water to flow down like rivers. Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding they, the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rocks so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven, and he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he led out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings, and they ate and were well filled, for he gave them what they craved. But before they had, they had satisfied their cravings, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of the Lord arised against them, and he killed the strongest of them, and laid low the young man of Israel. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe." All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. Our epistle lesson this morning is 1 Corinthians 10. We're reading verses 1 through 22. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers 
that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, and we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we continue to work through this long argument by your apostle, and as we follow it, we ask that you would grant us understanding and that we would hear your word to us, that it would be applied and we would know what it is to worship and serve you alone above all else. We ask you to speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Hope you are all prepared for the apocalypse tomorrow. If we see any of you walking around with boxes on your head, staring at the sun, then we'll know that you bought the fake news. Uh, That will not help you out to watch the eclipse, so I'm told. But uh, stay safe, don't stare at the sun, and if you have children, keep them home. They get a free day tomorrow. Over the summer, some of the, one of the great benefits of Jacksonville life is a slower-paced schedule, and it allows for more reading uh, for me, some leisurely things and things that I normally wouldn't get to. And one of the books that I decided to pick back up this summer was St. Augustine's classic Confessions. It's a wonderful read, particularly the first 250 pages where Augustine works through his spiritual autobiography telling the story of his conversion and, its, and his struggles. It's a rich and wonderful read for many reasons, but perhaps one of the chief reasons that this book has endured over so many centuries now 
is Augustine's pithy and poetic way of talking about the struggles of the Christian life. While reading the other day, I stumbled across this quote. Listen to what he says. He says, your best servant is he who looks not so much to hear from you what he wants to hear, but rather to want what he hears from you. And Augustine here is outlining one of the deepest struggles of the Christian life to want to actually hear from God. Not to hear just what we want to hear, but to actually want to hear from God. And perhaps it's the area where the church is its own worst enemy, that so often we want to hear what we already believe, what we already think is true, that we want to receive that, and we don't want to be challenged, and we can confuse our own wants, our own desires, our own comforts. We can confuse those things with the voice of God. Various things entice us to do that, but perhaps some of the most dangerous things that entice us to do that are the normal and acceptable things that no one else will challenge. And this is precisely what we have seen happened in Corinth. Though it's foreign and alien to us, to eat meat sacrificed to an idol in the temple was simply part of Greco-Roman life. It was as natural as going to a Jaguars football game, as going to a birthday party or going to a restaurant. It was simply a feature of Corinthian life. To be invited to the temple was an honor. It was as much social as it was religious. And some of the Corinthian Christians, particularly those who seemed to be well off and part of the upper class and were perhaps also part of the leadership, said that it was okay. Paul has to begin addressing the issue in chapter 8, where he says that they were to use their knowledge to serve their neighbor and not to lead their weaker brothers astray and back into idol worship. And then in chapter 9, he says that they were to use their freedom, not simply to their own gain, but to serve others. Now in chapter 10, Paul finally closes the argument. And he says very clearly at the end of the chapter, if you follow in verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And so he lays out finally the point. You cannot eat idol meat in the temple. You simply cannot do this. It is idolatry. And he had to take this long, winding argument because the Corinthians were not prone to hear this. They like to hear just like we do. They like to hear what they want to hear. And challenging idol meat was a huge issue for them. And so Paul has to labor and work to get them to hear and consider the gospel. Because what was the main problem in Corinth? I suppose it's the main problem for almost every church. That the main problem in Corinth is, was, is that the church remained too comfortable and accommodated to Corinthian society. They were to be the church in Corinth, but rather they were the church of Corinth. That they still represented Corinthian intellectual beliefs, Stoic and Cynic philosophy. That they represented the practical mores of the Corinthian people in many of their patterns of behavior. That they were still individualistic and pursuing their own rights and agendas against the interest of the weak and the vulnerable in their community. This is where the Corinthians simply demonstrated that they were still thoroughly Greco-Roman in their values. 
And Paul has to labor to break through, to gain a hearing, that they would hear what they don't want to hear, what was inconvenient for them, and what the gospel demanded of them. And so the question comes to us, is what needs to happen in the church when we become too satiated with the culture around us, when we only want to hear what we already believe? And there's three things that we find in chapter 10 that lead us in this direction of what needs to happen to us when we have imbibed the culture too deeply. The first is this, is that our conversion to Christ must descend into the core of our identity. Look what Paul says in verse 1. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. There's an irony in this verse where Paul says he did not want them to be unaware that in the original this word is related to the word knowledge. I do not want you not to have knowledge is what he is literally saying. And we know that the Corinthians prided themselves on what? Their knowledge. And so now he's saying, you are ignorant and I want to inform you of something. I want to lead you into a deeper truth. And then he reveals what that truth is. Brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. And in this reference, Paul is doing something phenomenal here for these Gentile Christians. And what he has just done is to include them in the sacred history of Israel. There is no Jew and Gentile. There is no us and them, he is saying. But you are part of this one story that God is working out across time with his covenantal purposes to redeem and save his world. And you are part of that one story. And this, of course, has been the unfortunate legacy of dispensational theology, is to take the Bible and its covenants and the story of God's redemption and to tear it apart and to put it into concrete silos as if it did not, does not relate. But Paul here doesn't tolerate it because he simply is saying that, no, you Gentile Christians are part of that ancient story. You are part of those fathers. You are part of that one family. And what he is working on here is reworking the Corinthian sense of personal identity, how they understood themselves. The issue for them was that they still understood themselves as Corinthians. They were Corinthian Christians, and they had accommodated the gospel, and it was deficient, and it was deformed. Their gospel was met with the culture saturated with it, accommodated and syncretized. And Paul here is attempting to bring them into a fuller understanding of who they were, that they would move away from being Corinthian Christian to being fully Christian, part of the story of God from the beginning of time to the end of time, that they were part of the purposes of God and connected to it, that there is no division of this Old Testament and New Testament God but rather they were connected to this new society that God brings out by his grace and calls for his own purposes. But the Corinthians continued, rather unknown to themselves, to understand their personal identity via the culture around them. And friends, this is the challenge that we face. 
that we tend to do this in various ways, that we accept identities from various places and we we allow those identities to be rivals to our primary identity that's in Christ. Now you can ask the very natural question, what are the place that we derive those identities? And just in pastoring people over the past 15 years, I've noticed that we tend to adopt identities from about four different places. One of the places that's common to adopt an identity from is from a trauma that we experience. Something unfortunate and painful happens to us, and that event becomes so a part of our lives that it defines us, and we understand most everything going on around us through the lens of that trauma. That is one way that people identify and adopt an identity. A second way is that people adopt identities around their cultural or ethnic heritage that they belong to, that they have grown up in a certain culture in a certain way, and they attach to that, and it becomes a rival to their Christian identity. A third way that people develop identity is that they have a cause that they believe in, and they become so invested in that cause that that cause becomes who they are, and they can't separate those two things. A final way that this happens is that people identify around a social class that they belong to, a way of life that often involves material possession. And so they are indebted in their identity to that social class. And so what happens is we allow those other sources of identity to then compete with our primary Christian identity. We oftentimes think that they can snuggle up together and it'll be just fine. But what Paul is warning us about here when he says to flee from idolatry is that we cannot allow any rival identity to sit next to our primary Christian identity. What happens always is that our Christian identity gets compromised. But how does it work? What does that look like? Let me give you two examples. Several years ago, I was working with a very bright and capable young man who had a writing gift. He could express himself very clearly. He was also a young guy who had been deeply hurt by the church. It was a legitimate hurt. There was a power play in his church, and the church had done much damage by concealing evidence and hiding things and not speaking the truth. It was traumatic for him. When we began to get to know one another, it became clear that this trauma was shaping the way that he understood and saw. It was the lens through which he looked at life and present experience. And so he began to apply this to almost every situation that was going on in the church around him. He also became a very successful blogger during this time. And so he became the one who was going to speak truth to power. And so he was constantly trying to ferret out the story of what was being concealed, where the lies were being told. And I sat down with him one day and I said, you know, you may want to consider that in pursuing to expose that you're beginning to trespass into the area of slander, that you're actually out punning your coverage, you're stepping into areas that you have no knowledge of, and that yes, you are driven to see the truth exposed and to see the phonies revealed. But friend, what you're saying here isn't really acceptable and it goes well outside of what scripture would commend. And his response to me was that I was now part of the power structure. 
And he could dismiss my critique, of course. And friends, this is what happens to us is that we become so dedicated to the trauma or to the cause that we can no longer see and we no longer hear the clear commandment of God. For my friend's case, it was that he wasn't hearing the command not to slander, to address things in private with Christians first. And he was simply going straight to the world of the internet to expose the lies. You could also look at this past week's events in Charlottesville. And you can see another example of this. If you would like to understand the nature of ethno-nationalist supremacy, I would recommend to you HBO's documentary put together by Ellie Reeve. It's very helpful. It's 22 minutes long. Some people have asked, what is my perspective on, on these events? And I think it's very helpful to watch and understand the nature of white supremacy. It's a disturbing video. The documentary simply follows the supremacists through Charlottesville. You see many disturbing things. It's a difficult video to watch. One of the most unfortunate things that happens is that some of those who went to Charlottesville would also proclaim to believe in Jesus. Not all of them, but many of them do. And so people ask the question, thoughtful non-Christians ask the question, how does a Christian get to this place? How do they get to the place where they are advocating armed violence against ethnic minorities? How does a Christian get to that place? And friends, it's a question that we have to answer. And they get to the place because they've allowed some ethnic heritage that they belong to and that they cherish. And that identity has then rivaled their Christian identity. And now they are no longer listening to the commands of God to love their neighbor. Very basic commands. And they're loading weapons on their body. Four and five guns ready for violence saying that this is God's will. It's not God's will. It's wrong. And friends, this is what happens to us in all kinds of ways. When we allow other identities to rival our Christian identity, it will eclipse. It will take over. It will shadow out all the light and the truth of God. This is what happened in Corinth. It's what easily happens to us as well. And this is the first piece, is that our conversion has to sink down into the very roots of our identity. And we have to be thoroughly Christian. This is what had not happened in Corinth. But the second piece is that our susceptibility to compromise must create an acute self-awareness. That we see that this can happen to any of us. That we can nurture a little identity along that rivals our Christian identity. But what we have to do is create that acute sense of self-awareness where we're willing to then examine our hearts and see what idols are there. Look what Paul says in verse 12. After going through an extended list of Old Testament quotations, when he arrives in verse 12, he says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Obviously, the Corinthians teachers, those who were filled with knowledge and wisdom, were very confident that they were standing. They felt secure. But Paul is warning them that they are not self-aware enough in their idolatries, that they didn't see, that they were compromised by this Corinthian culture. 
And so he gives four commands leading up to verse 12. In verse 7, he says, do not be idolaters. Here he's quoting from Exodus 32. And then in verse 8, he says, do not engage in sexual immorality. Here he's quoting from Numbers 25. And people ask, well, why is, are these two commands joined together? But it's just in ancient pagan practice that idolatry was oftentimes associated with sexual immorality, that cult prostitution was simply part of the gig. And then in verse 9, he says, do not put Christ to the test. That is not to test God and see if he will exercise judgment. And then in verse 10, do not grumble against God's command, quoting here from Numbers 14 in the incident in Israel's life where they didn't want to listen to Moses and they wanted to return to Egypt. Each of these references draws us back into Israel's story. And we're taught that those commands are examples for us and we are to learn from it. And here, Paul blows apart this idea that there is some Old Testament wrathful and mean God and some loving and gracious God of the New Testament, as many would fashion it. But rather, there's one God who's gracious and jealous for our affections. And friends, he calls us to loyalty to him, that we would worship and serve one God and not harbor any other idols in front of him. And when he gives you that command, he's not asking you to earn your salvation. He's the one who procures your salvation. He gives it to you as a gift, but then he calls on you to be loyal to him, to follow after him, to respond to him in gratitude that he is a jealous God. That he's pursued you all the way down into death and he's done everything for you in Jesus Christ. And then he calls on you to give yourself to him wholeheartedly. Not to gain, not to earn, but to respond to who he is. And so it is the same God. Old Testament and new. One story unfolding. All of his gracious purposes now fully manifest in Jesus Christ. And there's an important passage that Paul also quotes from. If you have your Bibles, you may turn to Deuteronomy 32. It's very helpful to consider Paul's quotation from the passage. In verses 16 through 18, consider what Paul says. Speaking of Israel, they stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods to gods that they had never known, to new gods they had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were mindful of the rock that bore you, and you unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. Paul's speaking here, explaining that they provoke God to jealousy, that they were unfaithful to him, despite the fact that he gave them birth, that he had fed them, that he spread a table in the wilderness, that he provided for them, bringing them out of Egypt, that they had been baptized into the Red Sea, that they had been fed with spiritual food. They had been given all these spiritual blessings, but then they turn away from them. And friends, that is what we too are prone to do. And we have to have an active imagination and a searching heart where we look at ourselves very scrupulously and we do so persistently, never giving ourselves a break, to ask ourselves the example of these stories. How, too, do I get accommodated? How do I get dragged into a rival identity? How do I get dragged into the service of another God? How can that happen? 
because our God is gracious and our God is jealous for your affections. This is what he calls us to do. And so we have to pay careful attention to these identities that we accept. Now, the final piece, though, of what we do as a church that gets satiated with culture, what we must do is that our weaknesses and our temptations must lead us to God and not just drop us off in shame and despair. If you follow with me in verse 13, is Paul's important conclusion to this section. After warning the people of the dangers of idolatry, he reminds us of the grace of God. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And remember the social setting of these Corinthians, and especially those from the upper classes who were likely to be invited to the temples, that they would lose friendships and perhaps business connections. Their financial welfare may have been related to accepting those invitations to go to an anniversary celebration in the temple. And so there was a tremendous amount of pressure upon them. And into that pressure cooker, Paul speaks these words, that no temptation has overtaken you, but that which is common to man. And so he says, you're not special. You're not different than anybody else. You're not isolated and out there by yourself. Other people can understand these temptations and this weakness that you feel. And that you have to receive and accept that weakness and temptation, but not allow it to send you on this inner path in which you descend into yourself and you crumble in self-pity and self-despair. But rather, you rise from self-pity and self-despair to look to God and you ask for him, to him for Him to help you. That God would be gracious to you. That God would provide the way out. That God would show you mercy. That he would descend to you in your temptations and your struggles. And he would lift your head. Paul says that he's faithful to help us. He's faithful to rescue us. He's faithful to save us from all of those idolatries that could capture us. And it's important here to remember as well Hebrews 2. Verses 17 and 18, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers, speaking of Jesus, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of men. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And friends, our Lord Jesus perfectly identifies with us. In all of our temptations and all of our struggles, we are never alone. They are common to man, but yet they are also common to our Lord Jesus. That he perfectly identifies, that he suffered under the weight of that, and yet he did not sin. And so he is the one qualified then to go to the cross, to propitiate, to atone for our sins, to take them away, to remove them, that we would be forgiven and made right with God. And he now stands as one who is able to come to our aid in the midst of all temptation. That's who he is for you. And so as you feel the weight of all the compromises, of all the weaknesses, of all the accommodations that we can experience as Christians who live in a particular culture, in a particular time, know that no temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man, and God is faithful. Look to Jesus. 
He will give you all the grace that you need. Let's ask him for his help. Father, we do acknowledge all of our weaknesses and our struggles, the accommodations that we make, because we know that we are like these Corinthians. Though perhaps we don't sacrifice meat and idols in various ways, we accept other identities and take things on board, and we are not fully converted all the way down into the roots and the depths of our heart. We need your help, God. Be at work in us. Draw us out to look to Jesus and to trust him. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.